Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is a podcast from Minute Media. It's my pleasure to affirm uh, that pursuant to a vote by the Mets Hall of Fame committee, uh, Keith, Keith Hernandez, number 17, will be retired this year in a ceremony on July 9th. This is uh, one more step in celebrating Mets history and its great players. Keith is only the fourth Mets player to have his number retired and is the fifth overall, including Jackie Robinson. Keith came to the Mets in 1983 in a lopsided trade with St. Louis. Uh, <clears throat> Played a memorable part of the 1986 championship team, hit 310 during that season with a 446 on base percentage. Music to my ears. He was a first team captain elected in 1987 and was elected to the Mets Hall of Fame in 1997. A great career, named to five all star teams, 11 gold gloves, six with the Mets batted 297 through his Mets career, which is second in Mets history. And of course, he's been a member of the Mets TV booth for the last 22 years, 16 of those on SNY. It's my pleasure to introduce a great player, great announcer, and number 17, Keith Hernandez. I gather that's my cue, Sandy. That's your cue, Keith. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh wonderful introduction. Um, I was com caught completely off guard uh, yesterday. I got a phone call from team owner Steve Cohen and um, he's in my address book and his, I told Sandy earlier, his name popped up on my screen. I'm going, oh, okay. Maybe he wants to talk about the team. So we had around a 10 minute conversation about 
the events that have happened, I think positive events in the off season uh, for the Mets. And uh, then he said, uh, well, this is not the reason why I'm calling. And then he dropped the bomb on me. So it caught me completely by surprise. I had no idea. And um, it's uh, just kind of soaking in and sinking in now today. Um, uh, the import of this, uh, it is really, if you think of it, and I'm so honored is that this is the highest uh, honor that an organization can give to a player. And, uh, you know, I grew up as a kid, like everybody else, going to baseball games and going to those, some of those parks with the names up on the wall. And I'm um, at the names, the, uh, the numbers are retired. And for me, just a little old blue collar kid growing up in Northern California on a beach town called uh, Pacifica, 17 miles south of Candlestick Park, a dream to be a ball player. And then to have uh, attained that and all the success, fortunately, that I had through, through in Major League Baseball, I had a lot to do with my former teammates uh, as well. Uh, but this is uh, uh, unbelievable. Uh, I am just ecstatic and so proud and so thankful. <laughs> It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, January the 16th, 2022. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G. Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. And I want to welcome in the good folks from the fan-sided podcasting network, great business partners, and our good friends over at RisingApple.com. Well, welcome to another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast. And it was ironic that just a week ago, I had our good friend John Struble of Mets Rewind as a special co-host, and we did our Mets What If show. And quite honestly, I... I got, got tremendous response to it, and I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. When you do something like that and you dive into Mets history on a off-season Sunday where not much is going on, you don't know what to expect, and the response could not have been better. And then just a day or so later, on the heels of that, and it's almost as if Steve Cohen may have listened to the show. Who knows? But a week earlier on New Year. We did the Gil Hodges special edition of the show, and then there was the two-parter, and in the second part, we talked about how with Gil Hodges getting elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame by the Veterans Committee, what does that mean for Keith Hernandez? And we outlined all the reasons why Keith is a great candidate. You know, the fact that he, over a 10-year period, was just as good from a win-share perspective as Eddie Murray, the 11 gold gloves, the two World Series, the MVP, the fact that he redefined the position of first base. I mean, how many times have you watched over the last week that double play on the bunt in Cincinnati in that wild game when Dave Parker dropped the fly ball? How many times have you watched that? I've watched it a couple of times, at least. And with all that information, and as we got all excited about the possibility that at some point 
this beloved Met that's now been in the broadcast booth for two decades could potentially be elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame. We get the news that the Mets Hall of Fame committee has done a little bit of a, a start on that and retired Keith's number 17. And I mean, look, uh, the jokes have been going around. You have what, Mr. Koo, Daesung Koo. I think Louis Lopez might have had number 17 at one point. I mean, there's been guys like David Cohn, of course, that have honored Keith by wearing it, and there's no shame in that. But nobody has quite donned number 17 the way that Keith did since he left the Mets after the 1989 season. And nobody will after this July 9th as Keith's number 17 will be retired uh, in a ceremony. And uh, as you heard coming in, Sandy Alderson on the Zoom call with the reporters announcing it, Keith giving you his reaction. And I think you... You basically saw the raw emotion of Keith and uh, a guy that knows the importance of the honor of his number being retired, loves this franchise. And in a way, I mean, he was honored in the St. Louis uh, ring of uh, being inducted this past summer into the St. Louis Cardinals uh, Hall of Fame. Not his number retired, but into the Hall of Fame. And I thought as I was watching from afar that ceremony, I'm like, wow, you know, the Mets really need to do something for Keith. Because, yes, Keith was tremendously important to the Cardinals. And I know things ended badly there. And Whitey Herzog didn't have much nice to say on the way out. But, you know, often as they say, time heals all wounds. And, you know, the Cardinals look back and you remember the good stuff. And, and even though things ended badly for Keith with the Mets when he was a player, I think the two decades of his work in the booth, the as I've said many times, he's the Phil Rizzuto of the Mets. He's turned into that kind of iconic, folksy, charming type of uh, of character. I mean, that's what you could call Keith as if you watch these ball games, and has opened himself up to a whole other generation of Mets fans to embrace, you know, who he is as a broadcaster. You know, with that combination, with how he transformed the Mets, and we've talked about that word transform a lot uh, with Buck Showalter and what's going on with Steve Cohen and his ownership. I mean, Keith transformed the Mets, and I was too young to appreciate everything about him, but quite honestly, as a young fan getting introduced to the game in the 80s, Keith was my favorite player. I mean, I was left-handed. I played first base and sandlot ball and everything. You know, certainly was no Keith Hernandez. That's why I'm doing this. Uh, but, you know, while other young kids like Lenny Dykstra for his, you know, crashing into walls or maybe the 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 star power of Daryl Strawberry or Doc Gooden, you know, Keith was always the guy I was gravitated towards, and and we'll have a special guest on somebody who covered Keith and had many interactions with Keith while he was playing, Bob Clappish of the Star Ledger, uh, Bob Clappish of the Record. He's been on the show before. One of my favorites coming on, longtime journalist, author of the Worst Team Money Could Buy, and ironically, John Harper this uh, this morning over at SNY, wrote an article kind of saying 30 years later, it's been 30 years since the Mets had the highest payroll in baseball. That was their response to try to you know wipe away how the 80s ended. You know, here they are, very well might have the highest payroll again you know, three decades later. It's just ironic how quickly time flies. But Bob Clappish will be joining us to give some perspective on covering Keith, a uh, real front row seat, and his thoughts on number 17 being retired. He also wrote a piece at the Star-Ledger, uh, the record online, where he talks about even Don Manningly making the Hall of Fame. Uh, and I think that this conversation, as we said a couple of weeks ago with Gil Hodges, making the Hall of Fame has opened it up for Keith, for Don Manningly, Fred McGriff, McGriff perhaps, and so on and so forth. So it'll be interesting to see 
you know, kind of how that uh, turns out. But, I mean, look, if you want to go back and hear the quotes from Kostya Kennedy over at SI, who well over 10 years ago talked about why Keith is a Hall of Famer, this all ties into why retiring number 17 is important. I don't have to go through the numbers again. You guys heard Sandy Alderson say it. You could go back to the New Year's uh, show and, and listen to what I had to say. But I think what's most important from this announcement and you can see this, and it's very, very important. I, I've said it numerous times, and for those who listen every week, you probably could repeat it in your sleep, and it's probably ad nauseum at this point, but the Mets are at an interesting time in their history. They're going from the underdog, the little engine that could, to the team that, quite honestly, could probably outspend anybody in the game. They're every bit the financial power that the Yankees are, maybe even more. We'll see. I mean, I wouldn't discount the Yankees. I certainly would discount the Dodgers and the Red Sox. Those organizations have done a ton the last 15 years plus to build their brands and build the power of who they are and why they were able to get pretty much whoever they wanted when they put their minds to it. The Mets are in a new time, and and they're kind of like where the 2000 Red Sox were. I've said that, and I said it would take a special group of individuals to get this yoke of disappointment and failure and frustration, all the things that we have talked about so much and have led to the end of one season and the hope for the next season quickly being dashed by something happening. But I think as well as that, as well as that point that it's time to embrace what this team has been about. It's very easy, and we talked about it during the What If show, how... You know, you could you could go through any period of Mets history and go, only this, what if that, Amos Otis, Nolan Ryan, Kevin Mitchell. What what happened if what 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 about if, if Generation K turned out? Uh what if Beltron swung at that curveball? We could go on and on. What if Terry Collins made a better bullpen decision in twenty fifteen? There's so many instances and we could go zig and zag and what have you, but sometimes I think as a fan base, sometimes the show, sometimes obviously the media for sure, we focus on the negative and we focus on what this team is not rather than celebrating it for what it is. And certainly as a young fan that grew up and fell in love with the Mets because of 86 and because of that late 80s Mets team, it was always disappointing how for a very long time they were virtually erased from any conversation. I mean, ask any Mets fan, after that team was broken up, and I think it was officially broken up when Strawberry left to go to L.A., even though McReynolds was still around and Cohen was still around, and it would just take a couple more years before everybody was gone. And then the final uh, you know, guy to turn out the lights really was Doc Gooden when he goes and gets suspended again and suspended from a year in baseball and then goes and wins a World Series and throws a no-hitter with the Yankees to add insult to injury. I mean, you could not be in a position where you want to be further away from 86 and the 80s Mets than where the franchise was in the mid-90s. And then you had the Piazza era, and that was a really fun era, and we've talked about that a lot. And in a lot of ways, those guys, because I was a, a young adult by that time, not a, not a very young adolescent when I started watching baseball, those are more probably my guys than the 80s Mets guys because I was a little bit older and able to understand the game. And obviously media changed and all these other things. But we never really saw the Mets, even with that team, embrace their history. It was almost like when you kick someone out the door, whether it be the 80s 80s Mets, Piazza, Beltran, 
uh, you always were like, all right, that era is over. It ended in disappointment. Let's forget about it and move on and, 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 and not even think about it. Because it was always about what it didn't accomplish and what wasn't done. And I think it's time for us to embrace what went right. Because at the end of the day, you've heard it. We've talked about it. Billy Epler, I said during his first press conference, said it the best out of anybody I've heard say it, maybe ever. The best team with all the resources, with everything that possibly could go right, only has a 15 or 16% chance of winning. And if you go back to some of those 80s Mets teams, sure, should they have won maybe a two-peat or a three-peat? I don't think there's any doubt. But again, it wasn't a guarantee. And history of baseball changes. You know, you know, like I said during uh, with John Struble, you don't have the Kirk Gibson moment. You don't have the 87 Twins. You don't have uh, some of the other things that happen in baseball history that maybe they were just meant to be. And I think right now we have to acknowledge winning is hard. Dynasties are rare. Elite performance is difficult. I mean, look at what we saw Jacob deGrom do. I mean, he's going to have to answer to that. If he's healthy, I'm I'm hoping he is. I'm sure he is. And and he might disappoint because instead of being perfect, he's less than perfect. And we may see people question that. But I think it's time to embrace what has been fun about this team because even when they haven't been good, there's been – fun players and performances, and even in the eras where things didn't turn out exactly how we wanted them to, like the Bobby Valentine era, like 2015, which ended not necessarily the way we all wanted it to end, or 06 to 08, which certainly had gut-wrenching final games and final weeks and final days. There's still fun moments. There's still things that built this fan base and the history behind this team and why you are a Mets fan today and why when they finally win that first World Series since 1986, it will be so special because you've gone through all the disappointment and you've gone through the highs and you've gone through the lows. And Hernandez should be the first of a few players whose numbers should be retired. Uh, there's Gary Carter, there's Wright, there's Strawberry and Gooden. I know those are controversial because of off-the-field things. I wouldn't discount Beltron. I mean, Carlos Beltron and David Wright for those between that period of 05 and 2011 when Beltran was traded, they're top 10 offensive players, top 10 overall players in all of baseball. Al Leiter's another guy. I don't know if he retires his number, but he certainly should be in the Mets Hall of Fame. There's a guy that may not have been Randy Johnson. He may not have been Kurt Schilling. He may not have been the top five pitchers in baseball during his time with the Mets, but he was right outside that top five, and he was every bit an ace. And he pitched some big ball games for the Mets, and none bigger than that 1999 play-in wild card game. He pitched his tail off in the 2000 World Series, and he was a consistent 12 to 15 game winner for you know seven or eight years. And he's a local guy. You have Edgardo Alfonso. I mean, I could go on and on. And even I know the off the field, he's not popular, and what he did is inexcusable. And and I don't even want to get into that. But Jose Reyes was a great Met. Is one of the more talented, multi-dimensional players you'll probably ever see put on a Mets uniform. So there's so much out there to appreciate. There's so much out there to celebrate. I think this summer, and I know with the lockout, there's some pessimism right now, and I think I have a feeling that the season will start off negatively because of some of the labor strife that we're seeing right now. But you've got the Seaver statue. You've got the old, old-timers day. I mean, I haven't been to an old-timers day since 1989. I remember going to an old-timers day against the Giants on a Saturday afternoon, 1989, May of 1989, and the Mets, it was the 20th anniversary of the 69 Mets. 
And I remember watching those guys, and it was almost like, wow, that's so long ago. Those guys are so – it was almost like watching a cartoon or a news, or, or one of those archives that you watch when you watch old film. And, and now the guys that I grew up watching are going to be in an old-timer's day. So it's so strange. It's so weird. Um, but, it, you know, it, it, it's good to see. And I know that some of this was starting to come about with the Mets Hall of Fame committee at the at the end of the Will Pond ownership, so maybe we should give, and I believe Keith was elected, excuse me, Keith's number was retired while Jeff Will Pond was part of that committee, so give credit where credit is due, but I know Steve Cohen wants to make this a bigger part of things. Mike Piazza has been on this program, talked about, I know it means a lot to him to see Mets history be cultivated and and, and grown, and, um, you know, Keith Hernandez is, you know, Cherry Kuzman's special, no doubt about it. But he's not Keith Hernandez. Keith was transformative. And I can't wait to hear from Bob Klappish. He'll be joining us in just a minute to hear about how it was to cover Keith, watch him up close. I mean, not many writers in this town, there's very few left, can say that they they covered Keith as a player. Now, everybody's covered him as a broadcaster and heard him with his, you know, wanting to get home. Like, it used to be Rizzuto wanted to get back home over the George Washington Bridge before the game was over. Keith wants to get home as quick as possible back out to the Hamptons, or maybe his, uh, his suite in, uh, in New York City, but, but mainly out in the Hamptons. He wants to get back out there. we got to hear about the traffic and his Tesla and all the other stuff. So it, it's always fun uh, to talk Mets history. I know that you guys want to talk about maybe the modern team, and we'll get into that because there is some stuff to talk about. I think now you've had the coaching staff finally put together. It took until after New Year, but the coaching staff's finally put together. You've got a promotion with Ben Zosmer. And the Mets are going more in on analytics, but I think, and I listened to Zosmer on a Harvard uh, analytics podcast, and I found him very interesting. And he said something very interesting, which I think ties into what you're going to see with Billy Epler. And uh, of course, you know, what what are they going to do? Because uh, I think there's one player that's going to be very interesting, and and he, not that he's a, a pivotal player, but I think he could add a lot. We've heard a lot about Robinson Cano in the in the Winter League. And I think his team won a championship uh, the other day. I saw some kind of celebration. I know I've seen some clips of him getting big hits, hitting home runs. It seems like he's starting to hit again. And I know he's been out over a year, and I know the whole steroids thing. But I, I think when Robinson Cano plays, he hits, and the Mets could use offense. And, and if there's a DH, even better. So we'll see how that plays into whether the Mets go after a Kyle Schwaber. I know his name has come up, Chris Bryant, so on and so forth. So anyway, let's take a quick break. When we come back, Bob Klappish, Newark Star-Ledger, the record, he's going to talk about covering Keith Hernandez, retiring number 17, and now we'll get into the lockout, we'll get into the current Mets team, and man, it's been 30 years since the worst team money can buy, and the Mets were the highest payroll team, biggest disappointment. I hope not to see a repeat of that on the 30th anniversary of that crazy team, but you know what? Anything can happen in this baseball craziness, you know that, so... We'll uh, talk about that and more with Bob Klappish right after this. Hernandez right on top of Willis looking for the bunt. Carter in at third base guarding the line. And Hernandez sneaking even closer. The ball is butted to Hernandez. An easy play at third. They get the force play. Carter throw to first is in time. A double play. So Hernandez, another one of those great plays, taking that ball right on top of the hitter. And then throwing to third base for the out of third. And then Carter gutting the ball over to first base to Tuffle for the double play. I guess when you have Hernandez, it's like having two or three extra outfielders in there. Watch this. 
three, five, four. How many times you ever seen that double play completed? Three, five, four. So now two men out, the winning run at second base as we look at it again. Unbelievable. We're back and joining us, baseball columnist for the New York Newark Star Ledger. Uh, you could also check out the book if you're a Yankees uh, aficionado inside the Empire. You uh, you know him, Bob Clappish, and Bob. Welcome to the program. And you know when the news came down earlier in the week that um, Keith Hernandez, number seventeen, was going to be retired, I was surprised. Uh, I think it's appropriate, and I said, you know, who's better to talk to about this than Bob Clappish? Who, you you lived it. You were there side by side while Keith was a player. So welcome to the program. And, um, you know, give me your thoughts as you heard the news about the Mets honoring one of their uh, former greats. Well, Mike, first of all, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Always admire your work and, um, you know, always look forward to talking to you, especially when we can go back in time and talk about, sure. you know, the glory days of the Mets and my <laughs> tabloid days, you know, working at the Post. Yeah, you're right. I was uh, an appendage to that team. I was a 26th man. And that was back in the day. I mean, I'll get to your question, obviously, but I just want to say back in the day in the 80s, you know, it was pre-internet, pre-everything. I mean, the only con- the only connection fans had to the Mets, and obviously you know how popular that team was, the only connection fans had to, to Doc and Daryl and Keith and Ronnie and Nails was through the newspapers. I mean, that's the only way you would find out what was going on, and specifically the Daily News and the Post. So, I was like right in the middle of it. You know, today newspapers are far less important to day-to-day coverage and the fans and, you know, understanding of the team. There's a million places you can go for information. Back then it was the tabloids, uh, which, which was fun. I mean, you were really part of the team. I was single. I was in my twenties. I was uh, a former college athlete. I really sort of fit in with the team. I kind of looked like a young Bob Ojeda. So, uh, <laughs> You know, there was there was certainly there was one and, and just the whole atmosphere was very, very much an understanding that we were all under the same umbrella. We we're all part of, under the same circus tent, the media, the fans, the the players, the umpires. We we're all part of the same package. There wasn't nearly as much division then then as there is now. And the Mets were more so. They loved the press. They loved reporters. They won all the time. It was it was a great it was a great time in baseball for newspapers and for myself generally. So, yeah, yeah and start, that's ahead, that's ahead. interesting. That's because, you know, when you're saying that all the interaction with the players, uh, I was thinking of a quote from Bobby Valentine on, a, on another podcast that I listened to about a week ago where he thinks it's easier to manage the media through the Zoom world now. And you're still in the media, so you could speak to this. But back then, um, you could walk up to anybody at any time, the manager, Davey, Keith. And and get a quote. It is interesting how much more connected everybody was. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, everything now is on Zoom. Everything is a press conference. I mean, there's no more one-on-ones. If you happen to stumble upon a little-known fact, a nugget, a story angle that nobody else has, well, you've got two choices when you're on Zoom. You either ask it and give your question or your little exclusive away to 30 other people who are on the same call, or you don't ask it. And which means you run with less information or you just don't run the story at all. So, you know, the days of breaking stories are, are few and far between now. Uh, you, you cover the game through, through a Zoom camera or through phone calls. But, you know, I haven't had a one-on-one interview with Aaron Judge in two years. 
And that's that's not the that's not the journalism that I grew up with. I mean, it's certainly not much it's not as much fun. So I think, you know, everybody's writing the same stories now because we all have the same limited access. And so, yes, if you're a manager or a player, it's much easier now to control the message, control the media, because you don't have to be accountable in person or one on one. And I'll give you a story about that. Uh, the atmosphere was so welcoming to the press back then that you know it used to be you could stay into the clubhouse something until an hour before game time. Now it's right after batting practice. You're out. You don't get in. So that's two and a half hours. You get one shot at the players before BP and that's it. Well, that's even pre-pandemic. Right now, you can't get in the clubhouse, period. But back then, you could stay in the clubhouse until about an hour or so before. And there was a Saturday day game at Shea, and uh, I was talking to Darling, and I look up the at the clock, and it's like 11.45. Okay, I'll wrap up. And we're talking about something. Ronnie and I you know, played against each other in college, and we we're friends. And so somehow it's now 12.15, and nobody had thrown me out. And I said, okay, well, nobody seems to care, so – 12.15 becomes 12.40. The game's starting in 20 minutes. And Davey walks in and he says, okay, let's, you know, we're going to go over our signs today. And they go over the pregame meeting quickly. And Davey looks at me and says, Clap, you're not supposed to be in here. And he says, ah, yeah, to hell, just stay. So I stayed. <laughs> so the moment the Mets went out to the field, I made a left of the press box. The Mets went to the dugout. And that was baseball in the 80s. That was baseball writing in the 80s. So I do miss it. I really do. Absolutely. And Keith, I think, um, look, uh, I was very young when he played. Uh, so the perspective now is different as an older, uh, you know, person. I'm in my forties. I'm not that old, but I'm getting older. Um, and you see this folks, not that old, pool. trust me, not, that, not that old, old. Not, <laughs> not that, that old. old. Take it from somebody who's <laughs> much older than you. <laughs> um, you know, the folksy Keith Hernandez that, uh, you know, and I see some of the clips from when I was, you know, in high school, I'm like, wow, the time flies. And the Phil Rizzuto version you see now, that wasn't the version back then. And he talked a little bit about it on his uh, Zoom presser. I don't know if you were on it, where they, you know, people thought he was Genghis Khan. But look, he was a guy that was always giving you quotes and he was the voice of the Mets and uh, for good or, or bad. And uh, at times, because it could be controversial. So I think you understand better than anybody, you know, the, the presence he had outside of the on-base percentage, the gold gloves, the, the big hits. You know, he was, he was a huge presence in that clubhouse and a change that uh, everybody talked about. You saw it firsthand. I did. And, uh, you know, I had a former Met teammate. You could probably guess who it is, but tell me that that is not the Keith Hernandez that you see on TV today or in the SNY booth. Keith is a different person. I mean, I mean, he's, he's like a Zen master now. He's so calm. He's so gentle. And as I wrote in my column today, you know, he has the same temperament as his little cat, Haji. Uh, I mean, he used to be this ferocious guy, you know, this dark, brooding guy with, you know, the Tom Selleck mustache. And he ran that team. He ran the clubhouse. And Davey was smart enough not to encroach on that. Davey was in the manager's office. That domain was his. But in that room... It was Keith's room, and Davey knew not to, to try and rival that. Keith was in charge of everything that happened on the field. Certainly, he was like a, a an in-game pitching coach. He would go to the mound all the time telling pitchers what to throw. But more than that, he would police the room. He would police the attitude in the room. And uh, and he included the press. If he trusted you and you knew he wouldn't, you wouldn't burn him on the record, he told you exactly what he thought was going on, how many times that, you know, Daryl showed up, hung over to the – to on a particular day and didn't feel like playing and how what BS that was uh, or who deserved to be benched or who 
was out too late the night before. I knew everything about that team because Keith trusted me. I mean, we had our fights. I mean, with a guy as volatile as Keith, eventually you'd run afoul of him and you'd have your wars with him. And believe me, we had we had our wars. For a long time, we didn't speak. But if you wanted to cover the Mets in the 80s, you had to be plugged into Keith Hernandez because that man was intense. He was powerful. He wielded that power, sometimes ruthlessly. And he knew everything. He was all-knowing. The type of offensive player that he was, I think, is a little underappreciated at times. And maybe, and I know you talk about it over at the the Star-Ledger with uh, the Hall of Fame debate, uh, maybe with advanced stats now we could appreciate it better. Didn't hit a lot of home runs. Was a money ball player. Was a guy that walked. On-base percentage, doubles, gap-to-gap. Obviously, the defense, if there was any kind of ultimate zone rating back then, I'm sure he would be uh, setting records uh, for first baseman. Uh, you had to watch him to appreciate him. I mean, that plays in Cincinnati that I'm sure you're at that game where he did that double play in that wild game where Dave Parker dropped the fly ball. That's been going around the internet for about a week. Um, I think that, you know, again, watching Keith, I think you appreciate the offensive player more than maybe the numbers on the page jump out at you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's one of those players who's greater than the sum of his parts, whose, whose numbers don't really tell the story about how he inspired the rest of the team. Just uh, he's one of those guys who just made the people around him better, sort of like this John Wayne character, um, because after the seventh inning, it was really hard to get him out. And they used to say the same thing about Yogi Bear. You couldn't get him out when it really mattered. He somehow found another gear. And Keith had this focus uh, and this determination, this fierce determination to not get beat by an opposing pitcher. He took that personally. He hated striking out. Hated it. It was always a great sort of surprise to him that he walked more often than he struck out until 1989 when he started his decline. But until then, man, I mean, he had an incredible eye. His, his walk his walk to plate appearance ratio was was incredible. And he just had that late inning thing about him that made the mess, the rest of the Mets really, really good. I think the demise of the Mets, and I know your uh, your colleague and co-author uh, John Harper wrote about a little bit today in SNY. Uh, yeah, in 1992, you could talk about what happened there, and you chronicle a lot of what happened in the late 80s in that book. But in 89, you mentioned his, his his skills declined, and he still probably was a guy that you'd go to in that clubhouse. I mean, Strawberry still was kind of volatile, uh, young guy, volatile, wanted, you know, trying to get out of there. You know, you had Jeffries and Magadan and Barry Lines, guys who were younger and really never took the baton. So it was a, it was a challenge for him. He still was the voice but he wasn't the player. And you could probably point to that as one of the first issues as the team, you know, went down the tubes, uh, albeit they were still pretty good for a couple of years. Uh, you know, Keith not being the same player, but the same voice probably started it a little bit. Yeah, that's a really, I mean, really, that's the, we could, we could talk for an hour about the decline of the Mets, you know, where they were vis-a-vis 86 to 89 and what happened to them in the interim. You know, Keith was was his best years at that point were behind him, and Daryl had become had become the star of the team. Um, and I think Keith resented that, and I think Daryl resented Keith's trying to continue to try to you know uh, wield that influence. There was great tension between those two, and if you remember, that culminated in that fight on Photo Day in spring training in 1989, uh, when both players start throwing punches at each other in full view of the New York press and, and, and New York press cameras. TV stations were there for photo day, which used to be a big thing. You covered live. And those two went at it. We're, they're just beating the shit out of each other on TV, live TV. It was a, it was Jay Horowitz's nightmare 
Um, so yeah, there was a great deal of tension because the passing of the baton was not smooth. And you also have to remember that, that, that this great golden era at Shea never happened. Uh, you know, 86 had come and gone and uh, that was it. There were no more championships. 88 was a tremendous disappointment because that was a really good team and nothing came of it. The loose of the Dodgers, a team they, they should have beaten. They should have, they dominated all, all year and they suddenly lose to them. And that's really when it, the team sort of went over the cliff and that the decline began, began in 89 in earnest. Keith and, and Carter both were suddenly old men and they just lost their way. And by 92, you know, they really had for all the money they, that Frank Cashin and Al Harrison had spent to, to sort of recreate the image of the 86 Mets. I mean, that was all sunk costs, bad decisions all around. And suddenly this great lovable team became this horrible club. And hence the, the book that uh, Harper and I co-wrote, The Worst Team Money Could Buy. 92 was an, was an abysmal failure. And really the Mets have never been that, that entity ever since, even though they went to the World Series with Bobby Valentine. That was fun. And they've had bursts of, of, of goodness, greatness, very goodness, however you want to describe it. They've never really created that span of 84 to 88 ever again. I'm hoping it would be nice to see that change now with a new owner who's willing to spend. He certainly has made some good choices, signing Scherzer at whatever cost, getting Buck Schulter in the dugout. Those are all great signs. So I'm hoping there's going to be a renaissance in Flushing this year. You mentioned Steve Cohen and the changes. And I think with retiring number 17, I mean, for a while, and I think there's even a quote I saw floating around where even Keith himself about 15 years ago said that history is a dirty word at, uh, at the time Shea stadium, uh, that there's a, yes, there was a lot of disappointments. You mentioned it, that nothing has been the same since those guys uh, got old and, and there's been, you know, fits and starts and births, but the Mets still have some fun history, even in the dark times, you know, you have fun players and whatnot and they haven't embraced it. And and now you've got the Seaver statue and you've got potentially old timers day. And I got to think that, you know, you cover the Yankees. So I understand right across town is the actual hall of fame museum right in your face. So it's hard when, you know, you have R.A. Dickey's 21 season to stand up to some of the greatness you see across town. But I don't think you'd have a problem with 17 going on the outfield wall. You tell me, I mean, retired numbers are fickle because you could get really, you know, loose with that. And then all of a sudden you got players wearing number 88 all the time. But they're all deserving guys. And I think Keith is deserving. And I know for a long time that team, because of the disappointment and maybe the off the field was looked at as kind of, well, let's not celebrate something that wasn't all as good as we wanted it to be, but maybe it's also about managing expectations and, and looking at the glass half full a little bit. Well, I think it's really important for fans to have a history to look back upon. I mean, the fact that the Mets have never had an old timers day, uh, they've been so slow in recognizing their icons. It's unforgivable. Uh, and I think we owe the fact we owe a great deal of thanks to Jay Horowitz, who's now in charge of the team's alumni affairs, that this is finally happening that Seaver will have his stash and there's, and Hernandez has gotten his, his number retired, and there's going to be an old, uh, an old timers day now this year, apparently in 2022. Those are all great things, and that's very meaningful to the Mets because I mean, there's so many Mets fans who still, you know, long yearn for the 80s. You know, I mean, anybody of a certain age wants it to be the 80s anyway. I mean, everybody wants to be 25 years old again, right? As you sure. get older, and those years coincided with this some incredible, an incredible era at, at at Shea Stadium. I think people want to be able to enjoy that, relive it, and say, hey. I was there. I remember that. I mean, that's why the 30 for 30 on ESPN was great. I mean, it, 
I mean, I don't think it told anybody anything they didn't already know about the Mets, but it allowed them to relive it. And that was that was just great. And and I think having Keith's number retired is all part of that same phenomenon of going back in time and really enjoying uh, a span of your life that nobody really wants to let go of. Bob Clappish of the Star Ledger joining me, looking back at Keith Hernandez, whose number was retired this week. You know, when Gil Hodges got into the Hall of Fame, I had done a little New Year's uh, weekend show and said, look, does this open it up for Keith Hernandez? Does it open up for John Oldrood and, you know, Fred McGriff and some other first baseman? And, and you wrote over at the Star Ledger uh, about another New York first baseman, Don Mattingly, who synonymously during the same period was talked about, you know, you could do the debate who was better. And I think we all know Mattingly was probably a better overall offensive player. Maybe Keith had some more intangibles with differences. And obviously it's about circumstances and team, but um, you know, one thing about Keith from 78 to 88, whether you like advanced metrics or not, you go to baseball reference, you go to fan graphs from a, a win share perspective. He's right there with Eddie Murray. You know, one has him slightly ahead. One has him slightly behind. You know, Eddie Murray's a Hall of Famer. Uh, Mattingly from 84 to 88 was probably the best, you know, one of the best next to Wade Boggs offensive players, overall players in a game. A um, little shorter period, but Keith has that 10 year period. He's got the MVP. Uh, he's got the two World Series. He's got the 11 gold gloves. Um, you know, certainly opening up the Hall of Fame to more at that position. I think only 16 players who played 80% of their games at first base, according to baseball reference, are in the Hall of Fame. That's not a lot. Um, it'd be interesting. Does Keith, Gil Hodges, does it open up for Manningly, Fred McGriff? What does it do for the position now that Hodges is in? And maybe we can look at this a little bit more uh, in depth with the kind of numbers that we have now and have access to. Well, you know, it's it's you know the, the the overriding truth about the Hall of Fame balloting is that there's no such thing as a right or wrong choice. It's very subjective. It's very fluid, and it changes year to year, generation to generation. Uh, so, what makes sense to the voters of 20 years ago makes no sense today, and vice versa. I think, for instance, um, you know, the steroid, the quote unquote, the steroid users, those accused of steroids, are going to get in all of them eventually as the older voters pass on. And, and the balloting is conducted by younger voters who have a much more liberal interpretation of what the rules should be or what steroids should represent. But I think someday there'll be uh, an annotation in the Hall of Fame that these players assembled, uh, amass these statistics in the steroid era, just like the, the dead ball era. Uh, it will be just known as a time in baseball when players were enhanced and their numbers were inflated without passing judgment on them or not. So, you know, Alex Rodriguez who I did not vote for, and it's not going to get my vote for the first five or six years because I think he lied and he really did damage to the sport apart from using steroids. If it was just steroids, there'd be a much more compelling case. But he did some terrible things along the way as well, including the lying and the lawsuits. Eventually, he's going to get in. All right, so getting back to your question about Hernandez, I think he's going to get in. I mean, he was passed over initially the way that Gil Hodges was passed over for so many years. But, you know, those perspectives change. And sooner or later, somebody's going to say, or enough people are going to say, well, why can't a defensive genius at first base be elected to the Hall of Fame? Because as I wrote, Keith was the Ozzie Smith of his position. I mean, he was a he was an incredible first baseman. And I'll give you an example of how well-respected he was. Back in 85, the New York Post ran a really old-fashioned poll for its readers. And back then, the Post had a million readers a day. And on the back page, as both teams were ha having great years, the question was, who is New York's best first baseman, Keith Hernandez or Don Mattingly? And it wasn't a matter of just getting on the Internet, pointing and clicking. 
obviously there was no such thing. You had to actually cut out the ballot from the paper, mark your ballot, and mail it to the post on your own dime. You had to affix a stamp. Guess what? Tens of thousands of readers you know, responded. It's a low scientific poll. Obviously, who knows how many were Yankee fans or Met fans. And Mattingly ultimately won. He was having his great year, his greatest year. He won the poll. But Mattingly said to me, he says, you know what? All right, I'm having a good year. I, I get that. I appreciate the support from the fans. But he says, I'll tell you what, Keith can pick it. That man has got me on defense. And there's one thing I wish I had of his that I don't, and that's a throwing arm. He goes, you ever watch him throw out a runner, throw out a runner trying to go from second to third on a bunt, the way he throws across the infield? I can't do that. He can. And I'll always respect that for, for him. And that's something that's never, you can't find, uh, you know, in, in a metric or in a statistic, but he had that gift. He had certain defensive gifts that I think makes him worthy of Hall of Fame consideration. And I actually think someday Keith is going to get in. It's interesting. And I don't know if you were a voter when he was up, but he only got like at the best 10% of the support from the BBWAA. I mean, Steve Garvey got 30. Um, Was it the Pittsburgh drug trials? Was it Whitey Herzog trashing him out the door? Was it the anti-Mets bias? We saw a little bit of that in 88 with Strawberry McReynolds and Kirk Gibson, maybe with some of the writers voting against the Mets. What do you think it was? Because that's very low for a guy that now on a veterans committee ballot, we can be at least honestly having a conversation as a Hall of Famer. I mean, extremely low. I mean, Steve Garvey, good player, but I think you and I could agree. I mean, Keith, you shouldn't be that much better than Keith or get that much more support for his Hall of Fame candidacy. Keith was a polarizing guy. I mean, and that, I think, hurt him a lot. I mean, a lot of writers who didn't like him in New York at that particular time and just didn't generate a lot of support. Uh, you know, his career ended poorly, too. You know, he did really badly with the, with the Indians, and I think he basically just tanked his career there. He didn't feel like playing, and he ended on a down note. Uh, his troubles with Strawberry, his public troubles with Strawberry didn't help. And I think in time, all those things will be put into their proper perspective. And I think the fact that we're having this discussion now, Mike, I think is part of the rebuilding process, the rebuilding of Keith's legacy. And I, like I said, I do think in, in a reasonable amount of time, put it this way, in Keith's lifetime, I think he's going to get into the Hall of Fame. And do you think Manningly will? Because that's a five-year run, 84 to 89. I mean, uh, after that, the back, you know, we saw with David Wright, the kind of impact that as you don't have your back or your legs you can't play baseball i mean it's let's put right. it that way um but man only had nine gold gloves too and he like i said during that period he and wade boggs probably were the two best overall players in the sport um he's you know it goes back to small hall big hall what's the bar it's going to get very complicated i think it's getting complicated like you said because of the steroid guys it's getting complicated because of smaller ballparks and offense I mean, there's so many guys in the 90s that have good numbers that you can make the argument. And at some point, yeah, you could watch them, look at numbers. Uh, you know, where does it become the hall of very good? Is Harold Baines the, the poster child for that? So it's interesting. Does, you know, Keith, I think, and it's not Mets fan bias. You, there is some legitimate, because of the amount of time Mattingly had uh, dominance, legitimate concerns if you start opening it up to that level. Yeah, like I said, um, you have to decide as a voter, you have to decide what is your preference? You know, what is what is your perspective? Is this supposed to be the Hall of Fame supposed to be for the enjoyment of fans and let in 10 new players every year? Or are you going to be, you know, be a real strict guardian at the gates and limited to two or three slam dunk? You know, the kind of player who you don't even have to debate about, you know, the Babe Ruth, uh, Willie Mays, Sandy Koufax 
guys who are so dominant in their sport that there's no d- debate necessary that anybody you have to think twice about doesn't belong in. I'm not one of those guys. I do think that the Hall of Fame is for the enjoyment of fans. And if a player was really, really good, great, even, I vote him in. I mean, he does not have to be a generational player. He does not have to be an, an icon at the level of Lou Gehrig or Babe Ruth. I vote players in who I thought were were excellent at their sport, were winners on and off the field. I guess as I'm getting older, I'm becoming more liberal about it, but I could see now voting for Keith, whereas in the past I did not. That's interesting. A couple of things, Bob, before we let you go. Um, there's an interesting New York athlete that I think if you go and fast forward to the present day that uh, you've covered, and I think as we get past, let's see what's going to happen with the lockout and look at this Mets team. There's still some tweaking they need to do. They spent a ton of money. They may need to get a $300 million payroll because of their lack of a farm system already talent to fill out the rotation. And they might need another bat, but there's a guy playing in winter ball that you've covered for a long time who falls into the steroid category, Robinson Cano. And I've been telling everybody, when the guy plays and is healthy, I don't think steroids is why he could hit. And I've been watching some clips, and I know it's in a winter league, and I know it doesn't matter against that pitching. And uh, you hear stories about how he's a good leader, especially to the Latino players in the clubhouse. So the perception from the fans, at least Mets fans, who don't like him because he's a former Yankee, uh, you know, could be thrown it, thrown away. But I think Cano's bat was missed this year. And I know he's getting paid a lot, and he's going to be 40 years old. But uh, I think he holds, uh, I don't want to say a key, but in a 350 at-bat scenario, I could see Cano putting up some good numbers. And I wonder, you know, how he plays into them going after Bryant or Schwarber and whether those markets come down and how they look at McNeil and trading him for pitching. I think Cano plays a lot into all of this, and I'm curious your thoughts because you've covered him for quite some time. I always thought, you know, Cano got a bad rap from Yankee fans. I don't know what happened with him on steroids. It was a bad decision, obviously, because that's not the player that I that I knew covering the Yankees. Like, man, he went out there every single day. He did not cut corners playing. Look at the number of games played when he was in sure. Finstripes. He was and he's a Hall of Famer, Bob. If yep. he if he retires, I, I know this is going to go. I think he's a Hall of Fame second baseman. He's up there I, with uh, Joe Morgan. You know, and you know he's going to have to answer the steroids. It'll cost him a couple of years on the ballot for sure. But I agree with you that he is he's of that caliber to be considered. He has a beautiful, beautiful swing. I mean, I thought his talent was off the charts. One of the best left-handed swings I've seen. One of the five best left-handed swings uh, in my career of covering baseball. And again, he was devoted to playing every day. It meant a lot to him. He didn't cut corners, and he wasn't ever. Fortunately, he never had to deal with you know the, the latest phenomenon in the game, is load management, which I think is which is a detriment to the sport overall. But you know, I don't know what he was thinking about with steroids. It's something he's going to have to pay for in terms of his 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 reputation, his legacy. But I, if he has anything left, and he may. I think he could help the Mets, and I, I think they should welcome him back if the opportunity arises. To, in a limited in a limited fashion, as you say, 300, 350 at-bats, he could be part of the solution. Yep, give a couple of days off. Um, you've covered Buck Showalter. I like what the Mets have done in the sense where I thought they'd go all analytics at the beginning of the offseason, but they bring in Billy Epler, who seems to have a really good blend. He comes from a great tree with uh, Gene Michael. Same thing with uh, Buck. I mean, Buck goes all the way back to Casey Stengel. If you took that tree and look at Billy Martin and whatnot, right. um, they've got guys that on Buck's coaching staff with some experience. They've got this 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 young guy, this whiz kid from L.A. Ben Zosmer now is an assistant GM. Who I was listening to him on a Harvard uh, podcast talking about trying to collaborate and really work with both types of 
schools of thought within the organization. And it sounds a lot like what Billy Epler talked about on his press conference. A lot of Yankee influence. I know Mets fans don't like to hear that, but they come from good uh, lineage. And you can't argue with that. I know that we've been down this path. It's easy to be optimistic in January, but you've got to like the mix. And Buck, to me, could be transformative where he can have more than just an impact in the dugout. He can really help this organization transform how they look at things. And and I think you'd be a great guy to speak to that because you covered him for a long time and you know him for I, a long time. I do know him. And I do. I think it's the best move the Mets have made forever. I mean, right there with Scherzer. I and mean, obviously with Scherzer, you, you know, you give front of that rotation potentially with DeGrom the best one, too, in baseball, if everything works out health-wise. But Showalter helps change the culture within the Mets. And culture is a word that's thrown around so much it almost loses its meaning. But in this case, I think he adds he adds so much to the organizational IQ. It's now going to be a smartly run team. And intelligence, that was lacking with, with say, Rojas, Luis Rojas, which is a, who's a nice guy, but clearly not ready to be a manager, major league manager. I don't know why Mickey Calloway was ever hired other than the fact that he came cheap, but he was not ready to be the Mets manager. Buck Showalter hits the ground running as an enormously competent guy, smart guy who will be hold his players accountable. He will make the Mets better simply by his own pedigree. Look at his track record. Every team that he's come to has gotten better, has gotten in quickly better. He's gotten to the World Series within five years of his arrival. Uh, I'm, I'm speaking specifically of the Yankees and the Diamondbacks. Uh, and I think he can be part of a huge and quick turnaround for the Mets. Look, the perception for years under the Wilpons that this was a team that was mismanaged, that was incompetent. And the Yankees have privately loved it. They've enjoyed the fact that the Mets were no threat to them in this market. They were just clowns, really. I mean, uh, they would never obviously say so. But off the record, you know, you could hear and say, look, we own this town in part because the Mets have defaulted on that. They don't even compete. They're so poorly run. That's not going to be the case anymore. I think there's an organizational intelligence, like I said, which has just grown exponentially, A, because of Steve Cohn's money, and now B, because of Buck Walters pedigree. Last thing, uh, the lockout. Uh, I don't know what to think here. I think that both sides are smart enough to know in the middle of record inflation and economic challenges and stuff going on with health across the country and the world that uh, missing baseball would be a disaster from a PR standpoint. I do understand the players fighting back. I wonder how much of a stomach they have to miss a paycheck. Um, I think the owners or there's some owners that are very willing to miss time because they make, you know, they lose some money in spring training and some of them lose money or they claim to lose money all the time. Where do you see this going? Cause we're getting at the point where I always said it was going to be closer to Valentine's day, than new year that we were going to see baseball solve this. That's becoming a reality very soon. Uh, give the Bob Clappish take. You've been down this labor hole a few times. So you've seen a lot as we wrap up here. What do you see? What do you think about uh, the 2022 baseball season? And is it in jeopardy? At least part of it. Now, I'm starting to think it is. I'm starting to get a little concerned. You know, at first I thought, oh, come on, this is no brainer. There's nothing on the agenda right now. There's nothing on the table worth striking over. There's nothing on the on the table worth shutting the industry down altogether. Both sides should have been able to come to a compromise by now, or at least make good progress to that end. But no, both sides are playing chicken. Both sides are dug in. And it's a shame. First of all, you cost your sport. You cost the industry an entire hot stove season, which fans love. It's a way that fans renew their interest in their teams. They start making plans to go to spring training or buy season tickets based on the activity between Christmas and, and Valentine's Day. And so, and there's been nothing now. 
So basically, you take baseball off the map for two and a half months. Very bad move. Second of all, uh, the issues now are so technical as terms of service time manipulation, arbitration eligibility, which means a lot to the people at the table. That means nothing to fans. Fans just don't want to hear about it anymore. They want to know when is baseball coming back. And I'll tell you what, every day that goes by makes me less and less optimistic that we're going to have an opening day on March 31st. The owners really don't care about spring training, as you said. But you know what? They don't care about April either. Attendance is low. Weather is bad. If they lose some money on the front end, all they care about is that TV revenue in October in the playoffs, which is why they want to expand the pool to 14 teams. They want more playoffs. They want more TV revenue from the playoffs. And as long as they're assured of that, if they can get that concession, then we'll see progress. But it may not happen until late February, March. And we may be looking at a May 1st opening day, which would be a shame. It'd be two, two out of the last three years that the game has, the seasons have been disrupted. Absolutely. Will we see you get on a man on Old Timer's Day, snap off a curveball to a piazza <laughs> or, or a strawberry? <laughs> trying to think who physically, you know, I've seen some of these guys. I saw Ray Ardonia's at City Field last year. I'm like, wow, he's, he's enjoyed a few hamburgers since his playing day. So we don't know who's in shape to play or not. But listen, for those who don't know, Bob is a semi-pro player. He's he, when he says he says he's the 26th man. Uh, you know, he he pitched against Ron Darling. You could get up there all timers. They throw a few hard ones, right? I mean, through fastballs. I'm, I'm still playing an 18 and up league. I mean, oh, so God bless you. I can't even play I, softball, man. I'm <laughs> I'm dying here. You're playing hardball. I got a guy I know, 65, going down to Fort Myers, playing in these tournaments, catching nine innings, and I call him on the phone. I'm like. How do you do it, man? I did one year and I was 115 and I blew out my thumb with from using wooden bats with all the uh, with all the bruises. <laughs> so I got to give you credit. So you're still out there playing, huh? And you plan I'm on still playing, playing I'm still playing. Huh? And it's funny because I've learned so much about pitching, just having covered it for so many years on the major league level. I mean, yeah. I, my IQ about pitching is is night and day what it was when I was pitching at Columbia. So, yeah, I've learned a couple of tricks. I managed I managed to get hitters out now. They're still playing in college. Think about if you had spider attack at Columbia, it could be a whole different. I could be talking to you about being a member of the 86 Mets. You never know. Right, Bob? Yeah, so, you know, it's... I was about maybe eight or nine <laughs> miles an hour away from being that. I was one run below that. <laughs> Listen, you uh, you enjoy the rest of your Sunday. You're always a good sport coming on. Thanks so much. We're looking forward to talking to you again and be well. And I hope to hear more out of you out of the, from the Star Ledger. And I, I know you got some projects coming up. So be well and let's do it again. Thank you, Mike. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon. And enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. Wanted to get into a couple of things here before we wrap up. Great stuff by Bob Clappish. Always enjoy the stories. Uh, these are the guys that I grew up uh, reading their columns and following the 80s Mets. And it's amazing that here I am all these years later, three decades plus later, interviewing them on this show and sharing memories. And it never gets old hearing about uh, their experience covering an iconic team. And I think we've gone through it so many times, but because it was a different media time, 
you really don't get a full sense of of what it could be because, well, like you said, everything was through the newspapers and it would be the next morning and it would be written. But could you imagine Twitter and podcasts and all the type of different outlets that cover games covering the team during that time be amazing if that uh, we could go back and make that happen. Might have changed things. And look, Bobby Valentine uh, was on John Struble's Mets Rewind, and I listened to that interview, which John did a great job, and Bobby talked about how basically anybody, and this is the late 90s, turn of the century, could just walk in and out of the manager's uh, room, the, the office, go up to anybody in the clubhouse. Much more difficult situation now. Like Bob said, it's a press conference and so on and so forth. But let's bring it to the modern team because I know that I, you want to hear some of my comments on that. And I mean, quite honestly, with the lockout, and I, I'm starting to get a little pessimistic that we'll at least miss spring training. I don't think anybody's going to cry about missing the first couple of weeks of spring training there. And, you know, maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, players now kind of have their own little programs and schedules, and, and spring training's probably too long more so for the hitters than for the pitchers. But look, Bob makes a great point. You're missing out on that offseason, and you're missing out on some of the good baseball stories that come from those early days in spring training when you're just ramping things up. But I'll tell you, it will be a free agent frenzy when this thing opens up, and I think there's going to be some good players on some pillow contracts. I think the players that didn't sign might regret that a little bit because that's musical chairs. Maybe not so much the stars like a Chris Bryan or something like that, but certainly the middle tier or those guys who may have some injury history. I think they're going to have to sign a one-year deal, and that could come very good for the Mets because we know there's some more work to be done on this team. And I think the positive that I see with what has happened during the lockout, which is building the coaching staff, which is more development in the front office as they continue to hire more and more people for their analytics department. And I could start there because Ben Zosmer, who came from the Dodgers organization, just got a promotion to assistant GM. And look, I don't know if that's because the Mets want to give him a promotion because they want to protect losing him. Uh, Certainly, uh, the word is they've been really impressed with his work. I have to think the analytics department was a big reason for the defensive run saved. I mean, the Mets had some good defensive players last year, but they made such improvements as a top-five defensive team. Lindor has a lot to do with that, but in general, it seemed like players, and I criticized it early in the season, were were always in the right position. I mean, it always seemed like there'd be a ground ball double play and they were in the right position. And you have to credit the analytics department and, and how they're incorporating whatever kind of proprietary brew of information to help the players not only get their buy-in, but help the players uh, be in the right spots at the right time. And, and we'll see what happens with rules changes and whether or not shifts are banned. And I, I, I still think that at this point, you have to evolve as a hitter before you start to... You can't reward bad offensive behavior by outlawing shifts because players don't want to hit the other way or they don't want to become more complete offensive players. But be that as it may, you know, I was listening to a podcast, very obscure. I'm going to tweet it out this week. Uh, the Harvard Sports Analytics Group has a podcast. And I forgive me, I don't know who the host is. It's some under, undergraduate student over at Harvard. And they had Ben Zosmer on the show. And Ben was talking about, you know, time with the Dodgers, being with the Mets. And he can't give away a lot because, as he said during the program, 
analy- as much as he'd love to talk to the fans about what he does and have them really understand the analytics department and the projects that these guys work on and how the flow of work goes and whatnot, it's all proprietary because you don't want the front office of the Nationals, the Braves, the Dodgers, or whoever your competitor is, hearing what you have to say because they may pull something from that. So it's almost like a mad scientist type of work, and you have to be very general. But what I really liked hearing out of Zosmer, and it was very well-spoken, was how collaborative he wanted that department to be with the traditional on-the-field traditional baseball people. And if you go back to Billy Upler's first press conference, he talked about that. He talked about not one way of thinking. And one of the things that we speculated about early in the offseason when it just ended is we thought the Mets were going all analytics here, that Steve Cohen, being from Wall Street, being in a a business that's heavy on analytics and going – heavier and heavier in analytics, using computers sometimes in place of people to do investments, that he would try to model his organization with that, with nondescript type of executives and managers and really go all in on uh, real-life stratomatic baseball, so to speak. And I have to tell you, none of that has happened because that's far from what I see Billy Epler being. We know Buck Showalter, who the fact that he has to apologize for being old school if whatever that means, and 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 talk about his kind of analytics that he used to produce back in the early 90s, late 80s, whatever, when you know computers were just becoming a thing. The fact that he has to say that, it just tells you how ridiculous things have gotten. But uh, I think you should be really excited about some of the hires the Mets have done. Look, nobody who's the bench coach, the third base coach, the first base coach is going to be the make or break type of hire that leads the Mets to the playoffs. It's all going to come down to the players. It's going to come down to the players performing at whatever at this point in their career is the maximum potential they can provide. But when you look and you see the Mets promoting this young, I mean, the guy graduated from Harvard, I believe, in 2015, Zosmer, executive, and his group getting bigger and bigger and having the impact it had on the field last year in just one season. And he talking about collaborating with these really longtime baseball minds and Showalter and his coaching staff with Wayne Kirby, Joey Carr, a guy that did a lot with his talent uh, when he was a player. Guys who were, you know, scrappy players. I mean, Cora is one of the more aggressive third-base coaches in the league, and I know there's been some criticism of that in Pittsburgh, but, I mean, the Mets could use that since nobody scored on a base hit at all, it seemed like, in 2021. Uh, I think you should feel really good about that. We don't know how these guys are going to work out. I know nothing about how Wayne Kirby is as a coach or Joey Cora, and I'm not going to get crazy into looking at analytics about how the Pirates, how many runners were thrown out of the plate, because in context, there's so much I could ask about that. That's just more than the third base coach. But I think you should be really excited. I think this is the first time in a long time where I feel there's a calmness in the fan base, a trust in the front office, and ownership. And it's funny. It was only six weeks ago where everybody was ready to tar and feather them. Everybody was ready to say this is turning into a disaster, that Steve Cohen may have all this money and he doesn't know what to do with it. And it goes to show you what patience can do. You can't manage your organization or or from the dugout to please the fans, to please the newspapers, to please the blogs, to please shows like us. You need to do it the way you know is the right way, the long-range way. 
And I think you should feel really good about the blend of people that this organization has. And I know a lot of people were a little disappointed that Glenn Sherlock, an old-timer, a guy who's been here before, was hired as Buck Showalter's bench coach. And I would have loved to see the Mets go after maybe the next generation of managers and 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 bring them in. But you know what? Just because it didn't happen this offseason doesn't mean Sherlock has to be his bench coach for the rest of his tenure here. Doesn't mean that there's not an, uh, a minor league manager that stands out this year that could come on board. And not everything has to be done in this offseason. You have to start to move in the right direction. And I know they're in a win-now mode. And certainly the kind of coaches they have and the kind of manager they brought in and, and the kind of moves they made indicate that that's where everybody's on the same page. But even when you saw with their international signings, I mean, uh, the Mets really are spending some money. And I think the most exciting part about all this is that the Mets are no longer a team that has to go about things a single way and drive that singular way to win. And if it doesn't work, they're back to the drawing board and they have to start all over. And that's where, as you heard Bob Clappish say, the fits and the starts and the you know uh, ups and downs have come because when they've had some good moments, they may not have focused on the farm system. When they focused on the farm system, they may not have had the income to invest in a, in a big way through the free agent market on the big league roster, whether that be at one point in the 90s after they got burnt by free agency after 92 or when they were in baseball purgatory because of Madoff right when Sandy Alderson took over. It's happened before, and I don't think you have to worry about that anymore. And I think they're going to go big on spending now. I think you'll see them back off a little bit as some of their younger players eventually develop. And and we don't know what the new CBA is going to look like. They're more course-controlled, and then you know, you're able to kind of complement your roster a little bit better than maybe what they can do right now. So uh, that's my takeaway with what's happened since Christmas between the Zosmer promotion, the the coaches— that have been brought in, and so on and so forth. So uh, I think that's exciting. Now, as far as speculation, I mean, it's so hard to speculate on free agency. When this, when the bell rings again, and, I'll, and I've said this, you're going to need to figure out how to get more pitching. And I don't know if they could significantly upgrade their rotation through free agency in any kind of way where there'll be a guarantee that the guy you bring in can stay healthy or give you the kind of innings you want. I, if you want an impact pitcher... You're going to have to make a trade. I'd be Like I've said, be real careful about trading Jeff McNeil. I think Robinson Cano and his presence is a nice thing to have, but I see Robinson Cano as a guy who could, like I told Bob, 300 to 350 at-bats, you know, a little DH, a little second, maybe even at the corners. We'll see. I wouldn't all of a sudden trade Jeff McNeil and, and count on Robinson Cano playing full-time at second base anymore, and he certainly can't, and we saw that in, in 2019. His range has been diminished, and, and I'm sure being away from the game for a year, some of that has happened on, on a greater scale. It is interesting to see that if the Mets have a big free agent move, knowing that the, other than Carlos Rodon, who has an injury history, and he's one of the guys I think potentially you could steal on a one-year deal coming out of the lockout and that frenzy, you got a couple of names that have come up on the offensive side. One in Chris Bryant, who fits because of third base, and because the Mets may really need a third baseman, uh, depending on how you look at Escobar, if he could play second, and or is he kind of a super utility guy? I mean, like that kind of situation. Like it's still up in the air, and and that's interesting. And another name that came up, and a name that I'm not always so hot on or so high on, but a guy that I'm kind of eh on because I think he's streaky and he certainly is not the best. To, defensive player in the outfield is Kyle Schwarber. 
and the speculation on Kyle Schwarber comes because of Scott Boris and Max Scherzer and obviously Max Scherzer with the kind of money he's making and I'm sure as he went through deciding where he wanted to go, influence into the kind of team he's going to be playing on for the next two or three years certainly was part of the conversation. So the, the educated speculation is Kyle Schwarber would be somebody that could potentially help. And the Mets could use some left-handed bats now because you've you've got Nimmo out there, certainly, but then you got Starling Marte, and you got Mark Canna, and Escobar's a switch hitter, and so is Lindor, and, and you don't know what's going to go on with McNeil, and Pete Alonso's a righty, and McCann is a righty. So you figure maybe you go out there and get another lefty bat, and with Schwarber, maybe you could DH him, Maybe you could spot him at first base. Maybe you could play him in the outfield. I think a lot of that goes back to the DH. And uh, it'll be interesting. I mean, look, you could have a very strong bench where you have guys like Cano coming off the bench at $20 million a year with this team. So I think right now it's foolish to speculate on where the Mets are going to go because quite honestly, as we look towards the next couple of weeks – we have the Hall of Fame show, and that's next weekend. So we'll get in. I'll give you the official Mike Silva talking Mets ballot, and we'll see who we can get on and talk about their ballot and what their thoughts are on a lot of these steroids guys. Uh, obviously, the lockout is something that looks like it's it's going to be going on for a little bit. You heard what Bob thought about it. He was very pessimistic about the season, such maybe even the season not starting till May first. I think that's a little premature to say. I think that would be disastrous. But uh, right now, I've been proven right so far. And as I said, all the way back in October, when the World Series ended, you're going to see this negotiation transpire and develop quicker, more towards Valentine's Day than you do towards New Year. And so far, it's lived up to that. And, and, and we're not quite at code red about missing even spring training. But I'll tell you what, uh, talk to me a week from now, talk to me 10 days from now, talk to me 14 days from now, which goes by in the snap of a finger. And we may have a different situation. So it's going to be hard for me throughout the rest of this lockout to really continuously go on and on. And how many times can you talk about Kyle Schwaber and Chris Bryan and where the Mets are going to spend? So we're going to try to continue to bring you great content. Fortunately, baseball provides that with uh, Steve Cohen announcing that he wants to retire. Keith Hernandez is number 17 and the Hall of Fame ballot that comes up. And, and, and we'll try to maybe even get to some lockout talk. Although, you know, right now it's hard to even speculate what really the main issues are because you hear some top line things, but as Bob said, there's so many core economic issues that are really into arbitration and service time and, and service manipulation. And at what point in a player's career, they should be making the bulk of their wealth that uh, I don't even know how interesting it is to even the hardcore baseball fan, but it's something that we may have to get into. But so that's where I really stand with the current team. I think you should feel really good. Like I said about, the kind of people they're bringing in, and the blend of analytics and baseball acumen that right now I see developing in this organization is really, really exciting. It's early. we got to see more out of it. All it is is a concept until we see it in action. But it's really, really exciting, and I have not felt this good about a Mets ownership-regime combination in a long time. Even last offseason— especially when the Porter, around this time, the Porter stuff was coming down and the chaos was beginning. Yeah, it was nice, but it was like, all right, let's see. You know, these guys come from Boston. They know what it is to be in that underdog role. They lived through the 04 Red Sox. It was all speculative type of stuff. There has been some accomplishments here with Buck Showalter. 
And Billy Epler has been part of a successful organization. So, yeah, things didn't always go well with Anaheim, but, you know, you spent a lot of time in, the, in New York with the Yankees. You're going to pick up something. And that's the interesting part. A lot of Yankee connections here could potentially be the solution to getting the Mets out of their 30-plus year rut. Actually, it's 30, what? 36 years since their last championship. So it'll be interesting. But want to thank everybody for tuning in to another edition of the Talking Mets podcast. Want to thank Bob Klappish. You can check him out all the time over at the Star Ledger, the record. You can check me out over at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. You can send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with our Hall of Fame show next week. Till then, take care, everybody. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Easter is just around the corner, and what better way to celebrate the spring season than with a Minky Couture blanket? Whether you're gathering with family for an Easter egg hunt or just enjoying a quiet day at home, Minky blankets are the perfect addition to your Easter festivities. Made with ultra-soft and luxurious materials, these blankets will keep you cozy and comfortable, while their stylish designs will add a touch of spring to your day. And with a wide range of colors and patterns to choose from, there is a Minky blanket for everyone. So this Easter, make your day even brighter with a Minky Couture blanket. Head to MinkyCouture.com now and find your perfect blanket just in time for Easter. Happy Easter from Minky Couture.